Are you sitting uncomfortably? Good, then I'll begin. Welcome, dear listener, to our Halloween episode of Against the Law. It's a cold, dark night tonight. It's a good thing we've got this fire going, isn't it? It helps to distract you from the shadowy figures in the corner of your eye. Hey, are you lost? Are you feeling scared? Come and take a seat next to me. I'll introduce you to the others. Hey, everyone. We've got someone joining us today. They're my favourite podcast listener. So this is Senya. She'll have us spellbound with tales from ancient Rome in no time. That'll take your mind off those mysterious shadows. And um, hey, Meg, pass us the marshmallows. This is Meg. She's going to tell stories from ancient Greece. Don't worry, she won't bite. Unless you're a marshmallow. Here's Barney. I hope he'll spill his guts later and share some anecdotes from the ancient Near East. Oh, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Flo. I'm playing devil's advocate tonight. I don't know much about the ancient world, but I'll share my blanket with you as we listen and learn. Here, have a mug of hot chocolate and, if you can, try to ignore the whispering noises coming from the trees. So, uh, like, do you guys believe in ghosts? Um, I I don't personally. Um, I'll, I'm going to go all uh, Democritus of Abdera and say... Ghosts don't exist. Oh, you sceptic, Xenia. I've got a, <laughs> a a totally true ghost story. Um, oh, yeah. tell us, so, tell us. Settle down, everybody. I heard this from, from my pal, um, Arignotus, who, and it's a tr- totally true story. He lived through it, um, second century AD in, in Corinth. Um, and so this, the house of a guy called Eubatides uh, in Corinth was empty for a long time because inside there were terrifying things and anyone who tried to live there would soon run away panic-stricken followed by a fearful and menacing phantom and the house was starting to collapse and the roof was falling in and there was no one brave enough to go inside. Um, and when Arignosus heard about this, he gathered his books, he had lots of Egyptian books about, about ghosts and stuff and he went to the house in the evening. And he sat on the floor in the biggest room of the house and he began to read peacefully. And then suddenly the ghost appeared. Um, And the ghost must have thought he was up against any old person, not someone who knew about this kind of thing. He expected Arignotus to run away in terror. And Arignotus told me that the ghost was covered in muck, he was filthy, he had long, straggly hair. And he was attacking on all sides. The ghost transformed into a dog, then a bull, then a lion. But Arignotus... This is what he said. True story. He found his most horrible spell. Um, it was one of uh, one of the Egyptian spells in, in an Egyptian language. And he drove the ghost into the corner of the dark room and bound him there with a charm. Um, and then Arignotus went to sleep for the rest of the night. And in the morning, everyone in the village was terrified um, that they'd, have, they'd, they'd go in and find him a corpse, just like all the other people who tried to stay overnight in the house. But against all expectation, Arignotus came out of the house um, and he said to Eubatides, who owned the house, he said, you can once again live in your house free from fear. But there was one more thing they had to do. So they had to go to the place where um, Arignotus had seen the ghost fall down. And he said, Arignotus said to everybody, OK, start digging. And six feet underground, right where the ghost had fallen, six feet underground, they found a rotting corpse and only the bones were still in order. So they dug it up and they gave the body a proper burial and the house was never troubled by ghosts ever again. Ooh. Well done, Eric Notis. Okay, that had me spooked. I hope that the homeowner uh, gave him maybe a nice tasty snack afterwards. <laughs> you, batter, you, you batter these sausages. Um <laughs> 
and um, and we can have a nice celebratory feast for banishing the ghost. Yeah, a deep fried sausage uh, sounds absolutely. I hope they did that too. Um, but yeah, there we go. That's that's a true true ghost story, haunted house. I hundred percent believe that. I also find it really mm. interesting that globally there's this phenomenon where we all seem to believe that if someone has unfinished business, i.e., is buried under a place of dwelling or something and they shouldn't be they should be buried properly or they should have you know the correct death or burial rights they're just going to hang around until someone notices and then goes oh sorry about that i shall bury you properly because that's worldwide isn't it Mm. absolutely and the romans were actually especially afraid of dying at sea because that meant it was much more difficult to find the body and bury it properly so yeah, there's there's a lot of like very sad little tombstones to sailors um, who died at sea, um, just like praying that their bodies will find rest or that they will somehow be buried naturally or that someone will find them and bury them because otherwise they're doomed to wander. I think, yeah, that's um, that crops up in Mesopotamia as well, not necessarily dying at sea, but in a sort of an inaccessible place to die out on the steppe, you know, outside of the conurbations. Um, yeah, you don't want to be left on the step where there's scavengers and stuff like that, you know, and your your spirit would be roaming the step forever. Um, but they were also very paranoid about death by fire um, and death without your full complement of limbs and body parts. <laughs> That's began like that Leonard Cohen song, Death by Fire, death without your full complement of limbs and body parts. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have a really similar fear, Barney, that I'm going to go out of the house and then die in a co-op <laughs> instead of a Sainsbury's. Um, like, so, yeah, because I feel like, you know, um, do, do you ever get that? No? Just me. Okay. Right, if you had to die in a supermarket, which which one would it be, do you think? Um, probably Waitrose and I'd um, haunt the deli meat section. Okay, I'm thinking like Lidl or Aldi, and then I could sort of take up residence in in the weird middle aisle. Ooh, yeah, Aldi does a weird fake Greek cheese, and it's not it's called like Greek style cheese. Mm. And I, and I reckon you'd probably do a good job of like haunting people and going against the law about that cheese quality. Oh yeah, I could be like, this isn't Greek style. Yeah, let me tell you about the Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone will be like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, non-consensual education in the cheese aisle. <laughs> Meg, I found it interesting that um, that the text and the book that was used to combat the ghost in that story was was Egyptian. Yes, I thought I thought you might find that interesting. Um, I think there is that sense. I think for the Greeks that. Um, sort of ghosts and demons are related more to are related to sort of egyptian mythology and stuff do you think that's i mean what how does that seem to you as someone who knows more about the egyptian side well i guess it's interesting in that you know even in more modern times um and especially you know colonial times and the early, early mm. egyptian archaeology uh, where you get the whole idea about curses and mummies and stuff like that. Like, yeah, Egypt has a huge association with the occult. Um, mm. That's the sense of it being sort of other, you know, to something that is that is predominantly Western. Um, and I guess very different religious system um, with the many, many gods and demons and stuff like that might contribute to it. Um, but I'm not sure it's necessarily driven by anything, you know, strictly inherent to Egyptian religion. It might just be the difference that's that's driving that. Yeah, like, so if we get a haunted house now, we send someone in who speaks Latin to banish spirits. Mm, so it's like so another worldliness in language. 
Yeah, so the Greeks used Egyptian, but we use Latin. Yeah, that's such a great point. Um, there are some good Egyptian curse and haunting stories, though. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, st- I'll probably stick to, I'll stick to haunting. Um, but it was believed in the early 20th century that the British Museum was haunted. Um, and a lot of investigators, paranormal investigators, would go and spend a night amongst the mummies and the um, sarcophagi and stuff like that to find out how it was haunted. And you know, it was a big, there was a big wave of spiritualism at the time, people believing they could communicate with the dead. Um, and I think the idea of mummies and the afterlife really really ties into that um but there's there's an object that's still held in the in the british museum called the unlucky mummy uh, which is a a mummy board um so like a painted a painted board with with the outline of a mummy on it and yeah it's it's infamous for causing a lot of various different mishaps uh the death of its first owner for example um and the people who are involved with it um allegedly the sinking of the titanic (laughs) What? How? So, despite the fact that this board has been in the British Museum <laughs> since, I think, the late um, 1800s, uh, it, it was said that it was allegedly on the Titanic, somehow sunk the Titanic and then ended up back in the British Museum collection. That sounds like scapegoating to me. <laughs> it sounds like, what did they think happened on the boat when they said women and children first? Did they actually just say <laughs> m- mummies and children first? <laughs> And and it was like a big mistake, and they were like, "Oh, he must mean the unlucky mummy, and not just the mothers of the children we're putting on the lifeboats." <laughs> We've accidentally summoned the unlucky mummy. Not again! <laughs> what are we like? That's the third time this week. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea that it could just sort of pop up to wreak havoc, and then kind of teleport back to the British Museum. Yeah. That's a really mischievous uh, spirit that's going on, except with dire consequences, obviously, R.I.P. Mm. Uh, but there's mm. there's an interesting analysis of why people begin to get paranoid about these objects. And one of the like, post-colonial perspectives on it is that there's a sort of a, an unconscious guilt in the fact that these cultural possessions from um, other cultures and civilizations have ended up inside a you know, inside a British museum, a Western museum or something like that. So that, that manifests as a paranoia about their being cursed, you know, about them sort of enacting some yeah. vengeance um, for being in the wrong place. I mean, that's amazing because that kind of parallels what we were just saying, that like the a lot of ghost stories themselves in the ancient world are about sort of things not being buried properly, like people not being buried properly um, and then sort of staying to haunt. So it's like, it's a sort of parallel to that, isn't it? That like if something's been taken out of its proper place, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have some sort of haunting ability. That's really interesting. It's like when you steal pick and mix from the supermarket, it never tastes as good as if you buy it with your own pocket money. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's got like an extra flavouring of guilt that I really am not partial to. But does it not sometimes taste a little bit better? Meg, I think that you're preparing to be a spirit, a mischievous spirit that's seen <laughs> I'm not. I'm not happy about that. I okay. think that's suspicious behaviour. Sorry, I'll shut that down. <laughs> yeah, immediately, please. Right, Xenia, you said you're a sceptic, but I reckon that you've got a story. Well, I do. You see, um, Pliny the Younger, he uh, writes a letter to his friend Sura in which he, he asks his friend if, if he believes in ghosts. Uh, and he says that uh, he himself, this is Pliny, does believe in ghosts because he's heard a couple of very, very spooky stories. Um, And funnily enough, one of them is actually very, very similar to the one that Meg told. 
but it's set in Athens rather than Corinth. But the other one that Pliny tells is of a guy called Curtius Rufus, um, who was uh, a governor of one of the provinces that the Romans had in Africa. He, he arrives uh, in Africa, he's walking through a, a public square, and just in the middle of this square, uh, this huge figure, a woman, stops him in his tracks. And she tells him that she is personification of Africa and she's going to tell him his future. She says that he's going to go back to Rome, he's going to um, be very successful and then he's going to return to Africa uh, in a very high up position as a proconsul. He's going to die in Africa and is exactly happened in Gershus Rufus's life. Uh, he arrived back in Carthage in Tunisia, having done very, very well in Rome, and he died. See, I think that method of telling the future is way better than the oracles, where you just kind of blabber <laughs> incoherently. And... Yeah, well, this is this is actually a, a big theme among um, various different Roman stories of uh, typically women turning up and telling people what's going to happen to them. I didn't come across any longer stories like like Meg's and Xenia's of, of sort of sustained hauntings. Um, but there is quite a lot of death and the underworld and the undead um, in ancient Near Eastern literature. And uh, there's some really terrifying images, actually. So I was just going to share some of the, the scariest lines I think I've, I've come across in, um, in Akkadian literature. Um, and one that's always stuck with me, and this, this was one of my set texts, when I was at uni, um, is from a story called Ishtar's Descent into the Underworld, um, in which uh, the goddess, the erotic goddess of war, uh, Ishtar, goes down to the underworld to attempt to bring back her lover, Dumuzi, who we've mentioned a few times. He's a shepherd and a fertility god. And um, she's stopped on her descent to the underworld at a gate. There are there are seven gates. Um, seven's a big big important number in Near Eastern mythology and the gatekeeper says you can't come through and she becomes irate and threatens him um, and says as her threat as one of her many threats that I shall raise the dead they will devour the living I shall make the dead outnumber the living it is really something and yeah it's just it's just terrifying that you know she's not even she's not even an underworld uh deity and yet has the power to, to bring the bring the dead back who will then not only be roaming around but will also be eating people that's so creepy i've had an interesting theory about what horror stories people respond best to and it's related to what's happening in the world at that time so for example um the pandemic will generate a load of illness or like disease-born like zombie films. So how do we explain Twilight then? Um, we we're all horny for vampires, I guess. <laughs> I, I I had the misfortune, the fortune, sorry, the fortune, not the misfortune, of watching Twilight for the first time as an adult uh, with my husband. We played what? a nice, yeah. Um, you didn't only... watch it at the no, time. No, didn't. I've also not seen Twilight, but I was really, really into Being Human, the BBC three series oh god yeah that was good actually so good (laughs) 
yeah, it was remade in America. Don't watch yeah, it. Yeah, British programs adapted into America, they can generally be passed on. Oh, this is going to cause a little bit of contention, but they're remaking all histories in the US, and I am not happy about no. it. I've seen a couple of clips. It's not great. If you don't have Matthew Bainton in your cast or any of those guys, why bother? That's true for sort of all media, I think, not even just remakes of horrible histories. If you've not got Matthew Bainton, then give up. It's true for my house, Meg. If it hasn't got Matthew Bainton <laughs> in it, is it worth living with? I would let him haunt my house. And actually, he was in BBC Ghosts, um, which they're also remaking in America. And that's very topical for today's episode. I- I'm aware that we've had off off-recording conversations about Matthew Bainton and his potential appearance on the podcast. Do you think you're leaving a bit of a paper trail for him? You know, <laughs> Barney, don't speak it aloud because it might curse it and it might not happen. So just let let us um, <laughs> talk about Matthew Bainton in as many episodes as we possibly can. We're like, you know that um, meme of Kim Kardashian being like, I'm dropping hints about something. It's like, we're dropping hints that we want Matthew Bainton on the podcast. Matthew Bainton, we want you on the podcast. <laughs> I'm going to make the next thumbnail just a picture of Matthew Bainton's (laughs) face with hearts around it. We love you. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, why not support us on Patreon? Our different support tiers can get you merch, shout-outs, and even personalised content. If you want to hear more from Against the Law, find us on Twitter, at Against Law, and we're on Instagram and TikTok. Search for at Against the Law Podcast. So, so back to that little couplet about the the raised dead um, by Ishtar. That appears identically in in other poems as well um, in ancient Near Eastern yeah. literature. Once by um, Eresh Kigel, who's queen of the underworld. Uh, the underworld is called Ekala in Akkadian, and. Um, and Ereshkigal, I think, is a bit of a terrifying figure. Um, but I'm going to have to field this one to the to the room and see if you think this is a scary description or not. Because some parts of it I find absolutely terrifying. And some, maybe not so much. So this is a description of Ereshkigal, Queen of the Underworld. The one who lies. The one who lies. The mother of Ninazu who lies. No garment covers her shining shoulders. No linen is spread over her shining breast. Her fingernails she wields like a rake. She wrenches her hair out like leeks. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Leeks. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. As you were, Barney. No, that's it. That's what I wanted to know about. Because, like, wielding her fingernails like a rake, like, I'm shook. (laughs) Yeah. Horrifying, but then... <laughs> I love the poetic resolve, though. Her fingers are like rakes. She's pulling her hair up like leeks. It's a very garden-centred... It's like <laughs> if Alan Titchmarsh got haunted. That's what he'd see. Yeah, that's so Yeah, I guess I think, it would, I think it's appropriate that there's a sort of an, an agricultural image there. Mm. Um, and actually, this Demuzi earlier um, definitely is reminiscent of, you know, a, some, a god descending into the underworld to try and rescue a fertility deity... Um, is quite familiar from classical mythology as well, right? 
Yeah, well, you've got lots of descending into the underworld. Um, a, a katabasis is what that's called in, in Greek mythology. Loads of people go down to the underworld. Um, and sometimes also people bringing people up from the underworld like Odysseus does, which is technically a nekuia rather than a katabasis because the dead come up rather than Odysseus going down. That's um, Yeah, that's quite spooky. Is that, is that the story where he's told, he's promised, yo, don't look back at your wife? I'm going to let her come up because you've played the lute or the lyre so beautifully. Um, but don't look back at her because she's going to be silent the whole time. And then he's like, oh, yeah. I bet she's not there because I can't hear her. And then like an idiot <laughs> looks back and she's like, oh, thanks a lot. And then vanishes into the ether. That, that's the story of Orpheus. Um, so that's another Orpheus. Orpheus. That's another okay. catabasis. But there's lots of them. It's, it's a yeah, it's a sort of classic theme. Um, um, the description of the goddess of the dead bunny that reminded me of um a particularly crazy spirit in in virgil's aeneid called electo uh, and she's supposed to be the the gatekeeper of tartarus which is where all of the titans are locked up um the titans being uh, kind of super gods <laughs> who fought against the the olympian gods a big battle Anyway, she, she like comes up from the underworld to speak to Turnus, who's Aeneas's enemy um, in Virgil's Aeneid, which is really, really scary. She's got like snakes for hair, not quite leeks for hair, but she's got snakes for hair. And she's got like a snaky tongue as well um, and flaming eyes. That does sound terrifying. It does. I know the name of one of the Titans. She's the god of destruction and he's called... Perez or Perez? Perez Hilton. <laughs> yeah, Perez Hilton. The only the only reason I know that, and this won't make it to the podcast, is because you know there's a TikTok noise that goes crash. Oh no, our table, it's broken. I was gonna do one about like I don't know something being destroyed in the ancient world, um, and I found him as the god of destruction, but he's not well known enough to do I it. Think I think there's know. one called per- Perseus, maybe who's. Percy's, maybe that's what I meant. I was confusing it, as Barney said, with Percy. I mean, easily done, easily done. On the topic of um, bringing people back up from the dead, there is a story, Virgil, uh, or possibly pseudo Virgil, not sure if it was actually him or someone pretending to be him, but it's really, really cute. It's a very long poem and it's about the ghost of a mosquito. Aww. A little gnat. Um, so the story goes, there's a shepherd, he's, it's a hot day, he's very sleepy, he decides to have a nap under a tree, uh, and there's there's a mosquito buzzing around, just thinking about, just, just watching him, just chilling together with the shepherd. But then a snake comes up out of the undergrowth, and it, there's a really scary description of the snake about how it kind of coils itself up, and it seems to be one of those with like a cobra-type hood that swells up all purple, and its fangs are already dripping in anticipation of, of biting this shepherd and killing him. Oh no. And the mosquito gets really worried for the safety of this poor shepherd, and so he, um, the mosquito stings him in the eye. Oh. And the shepherd immediately wakes up <laughs> is in pain because the mosquito's bitten him and he slaps his eye where the mosquito yeah. stung him and um and kills the poor little mozzie who oh, was no. only trying to save his life and get his attention the mosquito 
falls poetically to the ground. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, the shepherd notices the, the snake that's just about to strike him. And so he, he like scrambles back, gets a big stick and beats the snake to death. Um, and then the following night, mosquito, the ghost of the mosquito comes back to the shepherd in his dream and says, how dare you? <laughs> kill me when I was only trying to save your life and you've not even thanked me with an altar or anything and here I am and it goes on for absolutely ages listing all of the people who he's with in, in the underworld <laughs> all of these like famous characters from mythology uh, and then he says well could you please do me an altar and make sure that I'm buried with the appropriate rites so the shepherd it has to be said he goes kind of ott on this one and he builds him this altar <laughs> and he puts flowers <laughs> around it and everything um yeah and then and then the mosquito doesn't bother him again because he's safely at rest oh wow that has to be the only sympathetic mosquito in the history of world literature yeah. <laughs> i i must be haunted by so many flies <laughs> And I don't know. Oh my goodness, do you reckon that's what tinnitus is? If you've killed enough flies, they haunt you in your ears. <laughs> that's horrifying. That's a proper ancient history-esque expl explanation for tinnitus. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, so basically if you've killed a fly in your life, it's haunting your ear canal. <laughs> um, I've got some other animal uh, haunting facts or stories, if you'd like. Gimme, gimme. So um, Socrates in Plato's uh, Phaedo, so 4th century BC text, Socrates has this theory and he says that um, some human souls have a corporeal element, a sort of bodily element, and then they're drawn back when the person dies, the souls are drawn back to the world of the visible, is what he calls it. And then these souls hover around gravestones and tombs in a very spooky way. Um, um, Socrates says... Around the tombs, a shadowy manifestation of some souls is seen, uh, souls that have not been purely released. And they are not the souls of the good, but the souls of the bad that have been compelled to wander around such places, paying the price for their former lives. They wander around until they are once again imprisoned in a body because of their desire to have a corporeal part to them. And as you would expect, they are bound into characters of the sort that they had been. The souls who in their lives devoted themselves to gluttony, rough sex and drunkenness are likely to enter the bodies of donkeys and similar beasts, whereas those who practised injustice, tyranny and robbery are likely to enter into wolves, hawks and kites. So there's a sort of reincarnation idea that not just not that an animal might haunt you, but that people might come back as animals, which are somehow similar to them. Um, Meg, are you telling me that I'm coming back as a donkey? <laughs> yeah, I think Socrates was talking about you specifically, Flo. <laughs> um, okay, so, right, so there's a lot of transfiguration happening there, so they're sort of being re reincarnated into their next form. I do think that in ancient stories, and in fact in modern stories as well, the tales that we tell, especially to our children, have kind of moral elements. So you've got to behave and not get drunk on the weekend, otherwise you'll turn into a donkey. Um, it's interesting, Flo, that you mention about, you know, these tales being used to, to teach people, because um, I think that's, I mean, that's, I think that's a well-acknowledged function of, um, of a lot of 
ancient literature and um, our best friend Gilgamesh uh, takes on a fairly didactic role um, in one of the Sumerian versions uh, called Bilgamesh and the Underworld because that was his Sumerian name, Bilgamesh, <laughs> rather than Gilgamesh. Uh, and within it, <laughs> I think it's like it sounds like his like slightly less competent brother, Bilgamesh. Um, but yeah, so um, Enkidu, of course, best friend, um, gets taken down into the underworld, and um, Bilgamesh wants to try and get him back. Um, and eventually, his shade is sent back up to the surface, and um, I'll call him Gilgamesh to carry on with Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh asks him a frenzy of questions about the underworld, essentially of the of the type, you know, what happens to the person who died, you know, without their head? Um, and invariably, Enkidu says, yeah, it doesn't look great for them. Um, they're forced to, you know, X, Y, Z, roam, roam forever as a ghost. They eat, you know, horrible food, all these sorts of um, threats. But the, the point of all of these questions is essentially to like, you know, to set um, the norms and the rules for how you should how you should bury and treat your dead. So, you know, what happens if a father uh, dies without his sons and what happens if someone doesn't receive any food offerings at their altar and all of these things. So it's essentially teaching through Enkidu's answers because he has the authority of being down in the underworld. Romans had various different festivals to ensure that um, that things like that didn't happen, actually, that, you know, everyone would get their um, food at their altars or taken care of so that they would be OK in the underworld. They had this similar concept of, yeah, like what to do correctly to bury someone um, and wandering souls afterwards. Um, and I was when I was reading up about it, it really, really sounds like um, Day of the Dead celebrations um, in like Latin America. It, you know, everyone's just going out. They all go to their family tombs and they, um, and, you know, no matter who it was, no matter how far back it was, they, they will pour libations, they'll pour like wine on the ground, they'll offer food, they'll offer flowers. Um, and they'll refresh these um, rituals every year so that the dead don't don't come back and, and start wandering around. The, the way Romans actually imagined ghosts coming back was as um, sort of very dark or like black figures as opposed to, you know, how we think of ghosts now and um, it's like white and floaty, like overly pale. Um, well, yeah, in the ancient world, they thought of them as as very, very dark. Um, and in fact, the Emperor Domitian, who isn't normally counted among one of the like bad emperors like Nero or Caligula or, or whatever, but I think personally that he was incredibly creepy and deserves a space among the, the roster of bad emperors. Anyway, he used to invite various senators um, over to dinner at, at the Imperial Palace. Uh, and he would paint a whole load of slave boys in, in black paint. All of the senators who came were terrified. They thought they thought he was going to kill them. So they would just about get through the dinner. They'd be shaking, they'd barely eat anything. Uh, and he'd give them plates and one of the slave boys to go home with uh, as like a parting gift. And no doubt the senators were just thinking, oh my goodness, they've, this, this poor slave boy has been paid to assassinate me or something as soon as I get home. No, it turns out actually they were they were just a gift and Domitian was messing with them. Party bags were weird mm. in the ancient world. <laughs> yes, they really were. <laughs> Is there like a rationale for why ghosts are, are dark in, in the Roman understanding? 
I couldn't know. I, I'm not sure. I couldn't find one. I just think, I suppose, because it happens in the dark. It does make more sense than our sort of like view of a bedsheet covered. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, I think a dark ghost rather than a like a floating bedsheet is is more frightening because it, inherently a lot of us are scared of the dark. It's like they're um like they're a negative almost, isn't it? In Greek, it's it's very much the same. Ghosts are, are sort of often compared to shadows, and they're kind of almost invisible rather than being like how we imagine yeah. them. Um, yeah, sort of white. Yes, shoes. and it's worth pointing out in the same way that I don't know if this applies to the Greco-Roman um, world as well, but um, the the underworld, Akala, that I mentioned earlier for Mesopotamia, is a dark place. Um, you know, it's not sort of like our current conception of hell. You know, or fiery mm. or anything like mm. that. It's um, mm. It's described as um, yeah. repeatedly as like the house where those entering do not go out, the way whose path has no return, uh, and the house where those who entering have no light. So you you've described a place where no one goes out and it's really dark and you have to stay there and that's just my house. <laughs> <laughs> that's just yeah. yeah, lockdown, not lockdown. That's just where I live. <laughs> well, I've got goosebumps. Um, so what's your spookiest thing that you've learnt today, guys? Right, first off, I'm going to go with you, Barney. I liked very much, and I was spooked very much, by Xenia's story about the ghost of the mosquito. Oh, yeah, that was my favourite. And although, oh, sorry, Flo, and although the mosquito was sympathetic, the idea that mosquitoes can come back as ghosts does unsettle me massively, since they are so destructive in life, I could imagine that they're real assholes in death as well. Um, on that note, Zenya, I'm going to buzz over to you and I'm going to ask you what was your spookiest thing that you've learned today. Oh, nice one. Well, I, I really like Barney's description of the goddess of the underworld. I've never come across a goddess of the underworld before, actually, in ancient mythology. And I just thought, yeah, that description, although it was quite funny at the end, it was actually very spooky. Meg. I'm going to come over to you, I'm going to descend into Hades to ask you. Greetings from Hades. Um... My favourite was also uh, goddess underworld related. I really liked Barney's story about the uh, was it Ishtar, the other goddess Barney, saying that she was going to raise the dead and they would outnumber the living. I love that. I think that's very scary. Terrifying. I think it was frightening. I mean, my personal favourite was the story of Eubatides haunted house, and it turns out with a bit of Egyptian script, you can uh, basically find a body that needs burying. With that said, for our special Halloween edition of Against the Law. You can freak us out by following us on Twitter, at Against Law, uh, or really, really spook us by following us on TikTok or Instagram. 